When their home went up in flames on Christmas Day 1945, all the Sauter family could do was watch. Five of their nine children were trapped inside. Saving them was impossible. But when the smoke cleared, no bodies were found. Nobody knows what happened to the missing children. Did they vanish into thin air? Were they kidnapped? Or are their bones still buried beneath an 80-year-old mystery? It was the night before Christmas in Fayetteville, West Virginia. The year was 1945. George and Jenny Sauter and nine of their ten children were up late opening presents. Their eldest daughter, 19-year-old Marion, worked at a general store in town. They sold all sorts of knickknacks, the perfect gifts for her brothers and sisters. Her little sisters were elated. There was 12-year-old Martha, 8-year-old Jenny, and 5-year-old Betty. They wanted to stay up past their bedtimes to play with their new toys. Normally, Mom would send the girls to bed, but it was Christmas. Christmas, the whole family was together, all except their second oldest son, Joe, who was serving during World War II. Jenny let the kids stay up and have their fun, so long as nine-year-old Louis and 14-year-old Maurice remembered to put the cows and chickens away. Jenny took two-year-old Sylvia up to bed while the younger children played. George and their older sons, 22-year-old John and 16-year-old George Jr., were already out cold, exhausted from a long day's work. All fell quiet in the Sauter home. Then at 12.38, a.m., a ringing phone cut through the night. It woke up Jenny, who rushed downstairs to answer it. Why would someone be calling this late? Did something happen to Joe in Europe? A woman spoke on the other line. She asked for a name that Jenny didn't recognize. In the background, Jenny could hear voices, laughter, and clinking glasses. It sounded like this woman was at a party. Jenny told the woman, you have the wrong number, and hung up. She turned off all the downstairs lights and locked the front door as she tiptoed back to bed. Marion was asleep on the sofa. The other boys and girls had gone to their bedrooms in the attic. Just as Jenny was about to doze off, she heard a loud bang on the roof, followed by a rolling sound. It was as if a ball had landed on the roof and rolled off the side. She didn't think much of it. It was probably a branch or a large pine cone. She drifted off to sleep, only to wake up again to the smell of smoke. It rolled under her door and filled the bedroom. She woke up her husband and they scrambled to gather the children. They made it outside with four of their nine kids. Maurice, Martha, Louis, Little Jenny, Jenny and Betty were still upstairs in their attic bedrooms. George tried to run back and save them, but the stairs were engulfed in flames. He scaled the side of the home and broke an upstairs window. In doing so, he sliced his forearm on the glass. Blood puddled in his shirt, but adrenaline kept him going. He went to grab a ladder, one he always kept in the same spot, but it was gone. He tried using a barrel of water to douse the flames, but the water was frozen stiff. Then George had an idea. If he moved two of his trucks near the window, He could stand on them and reach the window, but neither truck would start. Strange, he thought. They were working fine yesterday. Meanwhile, Jenny tried calling the fire department, but the phone wasn't working. She sent Marion to a neighbor's home, but she couldn't get the operator on the line. They had no choice but to drive into town and find the fire chief. Unfortunately, the fire chief was as useless as George's frozen water barrel. The Fayetteville Fire Department was already spread thin between the war and the holiday. They also operated on a phone tree system. That meant the chief would call one fire firefighter, they'd call another, and they'd call another, and so on, until the team assembled. To make matters worse, the fire chief didn't know how to drive the truck. They were less than three miles from the Sauter home, but didn't show up until eight in the morning. You could say the Sauters watched hopelessly as their home collapsed into a pile of smoldering ash. Now, remember that word, hopelessly. It'll plague the Sauters for the rest of their days. George and Jenny assumed the worst, that five of their children were dead. Their family 
family was cut in half in a matter of hours. But then a little bit of hope stirred inside of them. A brief search of the rubble didn't produce any bones or bodies. Maybe the children managed to escape. But if they did, where were they? The fire chief speculated that the fire burned long and hot enough to cremate the bones. An inspector for the police department blamed the fire on faulty wiring. The coroner's office issued five death certificates, one for each child. Cause of death, fire, or suffocation. As far as officials in Fayetteville were concerned, the Sauter children were dead. George believed them at first. In his grief, he covered the ashen plot with five feet of dirt. He intended to build a memorial, but... He may have accidentally covered up a crime scene. The odd string of events before, during, and after the fire are impossible to ignore. From a threatening salesman to a town-wide conspiracy, the case of the missing Sauter children remains one of the hottest unsolved mysteries in West Virginia's history. So, in a story littered with coincidences and theories, it's best to start at the beginning, on a passenger ship from Italy in 1908. Giorgio Sodu was born in Tula, Sardinia, Italy in 1890. He and his older brother came to the United States in 1908, but his brother returned to Italy the moment they landed on Ellis Island. Left to his own devices, Giorgio Sodu, now George Sauter, found work on the Pennsylvania Railroads. From there, he moved to West Virginia and began his own trucking company. One day, he walked into a local music store. He fell head over heels for the owner's daughter, Jenny Cipriani. She was a fellow Italian immigrant, having come to America when she was three. They got married and had ten children between 1923 and 1943. In that time, they said, Settled in Fayetteville, West Virginia, an Appalachian town with a small Italian-American community. Fayetteville itself was tiny, home to about 1,300 people at the time. The entire Sauter family made up 1% of the population. They were respected within the community. George was known as a friendly, outspoken guy. He just didn't like to talk about his past. In fact, he never explained what happened in Italy that forced him and his brother to leave. There's also no explanation for why his brother turned back. Some think the Italian mafia had something to do with it. Of course, they might be confusing George's story with the plot of The Godfather 2. George liked to talk politics, which often got him in trouble. He hated Italian dictator Benito Mussolini. Other Italians in Fayetteville were big fans. One day, a life insurance salesman came to their door. When George denied him, the man went berserk. As the story goes, the salesman said, your goddamn house is going to go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. You are going to pay for the dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini. By then, Mussolini had already been deposed and executed. This caused a rift in the Italian community, as the dictator was supposed to be arrested and tried for war crimes by the UN. On another strange occasion, a man showed up looking for work. He wandered around the back of the house, looked at the fuse box, and said, this is going to cause a fire someday. George brushed him off. He just had the fuse box and wiring inspected. The local power company told him everything was in tip-top shape. A few days before Christmas, the older Sauter boys noticed a car parked nearby. A man was inside, watching the younger kids as they returned home from school. Every day since the Christmas fire, the Sauter family has rejected any notion that the missing children perished in the blaze. The doubts began when Jenny spoke with an employee at the local crematorium. They said bones often remained even after two hours in 2,000 degree furnaces. Their home only burned for 45 minutes. Furthermore, your standard house 
fire tops out at about 1,500 degrees in the highest part of the house. Remember, the children were asleep in the attic. Jenny did her own tests. She burned animal bones, including beef joints and pork chops. When she sifted through the ashes, she found the charred bones. She could also see the remnants of home appliances. If the fire wasn't hot enough to destroy the stove, how could it cremate five children? A few days later, Jenny read a story about a family of seven who perished in a house fire. All their bones were recovered from the scene. George had his suspicions too. Remember, the ladder that wasn't where it was supposed to be? George found it in a ditch about 75 feet away from the house. Ladders don't just get up and move. Somebody put it there. Then they got to thinking about the faulty wiring theory. If that was true, why were the lights still working when the house caught fire? And remember how their phone wasn't working after the fire started? When a repairman came to fix the wires, he said they were cut, not burned. That's when a witness came forward claiming they saw a man stealing George's block and tackle. It's a device used to remove heavy engines from cars. Police arrested this man and he admitted to cutting the phone wire. He thought it was the power line. Sources say he pleaded guilty to theft and cutting the lines, but there's no official record about him. Whoever he was, he may have saved the surviving Sauters that night. George said, we never would have gotten out of there alive if the lights had been cut. The next witness was a late night bus driver. They claim they saw someone tossing balls of fire onto the Sauters' roof. Now, this would explain what Jeannie heard before the fire started. Three months later, little Sylvia found a hard rubber object in the yard while her family visited their former home. George believed it was part of a homemade bomb. Their hopes kept growing when several people reported seeing the missing children. The first sighting came from a woman who was watching the fire. She said she saw the kids drive by in a car while their home burned in the background. The next report came from a rest stop between Fayetteville and Charleston, West Virginia. A waitress said she served the children breakfast. She also noticed a car with Florida license plates in the parking lot. Next, a woman working at a hotel in Charleston recognized the children's pictures in the paper. She recalled seeing them about a week after the fire, traveling with two men and two women. She said they stayed in a large room with several beds. They checked in around midnight, and the men weren't too friendly. They wouldn't let her talk to the kids. Then they'd have their own conversation in rapid Italian, suggesting it was their native tongue. They were gone the next morning. All these coincidences led the Sauters to believe their children were kidnapped. But who would want to take their kids? Some speculated that the mafia had something to do with it. Italian gangsters at the time were known to use Molotov cocktails. Maybe something in George's past was catching up to him. Or maybe someone should question the insurance salesman who literally threatened the family over George's anti-Mussolini comments. One thing was for sure. Fayetteville officials refused to help. The kids died in the fire. That was their story, and they were sticking to it. Then again, this came from the fire chief who didn't know how to drive a fire truck. The Sauters wrote to the FBI in 1947, but their case was out of FBI jurisdiction. The feds could only get involved if local police let them in. And what do you know? The Fayetteville Police and Fire Department stonewalled the FBI. What were they hiding? We may never know. George and Jenny turned to C.C. Tinsley, a private investigator from a nearby town. He discovered that the same insurance salesman who threatened George before the fire was on the coroner's jury that deemed the fire accidental. Coincidence? Perhaps. Strange? Absolutely. Next, Tinsley turned his attention to the incompetent fire chief. It turns out the chief had a dirty little secret. There was a rumor around town that he'd found a human heart and buried it in a box among the ashes. Tinsley convinced the chief to show him where he buried the heart. They took it to a funeral home where they determined that the heart was actually a chunk of beef liver. It was fresh and had never been exposed to the fire. The chief said, 
said he put it there hoping the Sodders would find it and accept their children's fate. This guy might be the worst fire chief in America. Why on earth would one of the children's hearts end up in a box? Wouldn't that make the family question things more? New leads kept popping up all over the country. George saw a picture in the paper of school children in New York City. He swore one of them looked like his daughter Betty. He drove to New York looking for the child. When he found her, the parents refused to let him speak to her. You would too if a strange man from West Virginia drove over 500 miles because he saw your daughter's picture in the paper. In 1949, George commissioned a pathologist from Washington, D.C. to excavate the scene. They found four shards of human vertebrae and sent the bones to the Smithsonian for testing. But it was just another dead end. Based on the fusing, the bones belonged to a male between 16 and 22. The oldest missing solder boy was 14-year-old Maurice. There was a slim chance the bones could be from a 14-year-old boy, but none of them showed any signs of fire damage. The report went on to say, it is very strange that no other bones were found in the allegedly careful evacuation of the basement of the house. One would expect to find the full skeletons of the five children rather than only four vertebrae. But where did the bones come from? The theory is that they were mixed into the five feet worth of dirt George used to cover the site. Who they belonged to remains a mystery. The Smithsonian gave them back to George. Nobody knows what happened to them. The governor of West Virginia had heard enough of this story. After the Smithsonian report, he declared that the Sauter's search for their missing kids was hopeless. He closed the case in 1950. George and Jenny fought back. They put up a billboard of their children's faces and alleged a statewide cover-up. They eventually offered a $10,000 reward for information. That would be about $130,000 today. Money like that can really change your life. As expected, tips, letters, and phone calls poured in. A woman in St. Louis claimed Martha was at a convent. Someone in Texas overheard an incriminating conversation about a Christmas Eve fire in West Virginia. Someone in Florida claimed the children were staying with one of Jenny's distant relatives. No matter how outlandish or far away, George got in his car and investigated every lead. He must have driven tens of thousands of miles before his death in 1969. Their best lead came in shortly before George's death. In 1968, Jenny received a letter from Kentucky. Inside was a photo of a man in his late 20s, early 30s. It looked an awful lot like nine-year-old Lewis all grown up. On the backside, a cryptic hand written note read, Louis Sauter, I love brother Frankie, Lil Boys. A90132 or 35. The number 90132 is actually an area code in Palermo, Sicily. This has led some to believe that whoever kidnapped the Sauter children took them back to Italy. But why? Also, who's Frankie? The Sauters didn't have a son named Frankie. Could it be a code? A cipher of sorts? The Sauters updated the photo of Lewis on their billboard but didn't mention anything about Kentucky. They feared that doing so might put the sender, whoever he was, in danger. The photo was the last piece of hope George Sauter could hold on to before he passed. Jenny followed him about 20 years later. The billboard eventually came down, but the surviving Sauter family members still held out hope. Sylvia, the youngest surviving sibling, died in 2021. Her children have promised to keep the story alive until there's definitive proof. But with today's modern technology, it's strange that nobody's decided to excavate the property. If there are bones down there, ground-penetrating radar 
radar would be able to find them. DNA could prove they belong to the Sauter children. And if the missing Sauter kids are still out there, they'd be between 83 and 92 years old. Were they kidnapped in an elaborate mafia plot? Did a World War II veteran have a personal vendetta against Italian Americans? Unfortunately, the simplest solution is the most plausible. The children died in the fire. An inept fire and police department simply didn't look hard enough. Then, George likely buried the evidence when he filled the area with dirt. But what do you think happened to the Sauter kids all those years ago? And that's your recap. Thanks for hanging out with us today. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, go ahead and tap that subscribe button so you never miss a story. But don't go away. Catch up on more recaps right here, right now. Until next time, take care.